0: Well, I'll say, bless the Lord, if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord, bless Bless his holy name. Good. Now that Boggs has coached you up on the theology of that phrase and that liturgy, good to see you guys. Kairos, I'm Chris, I'm the pastor here. Glad you guys are worshiping here with us tonight. We're going to be the kind of place that can engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. We got a special place in our heart here for people who feel cut off who feel trapped, who feel like they're pinned down, and it doesn't look like there's any way out. The reason I say that is because I imagine that's much how a guy named Donald Wyman felt in June 30th, 1993, when he was in the mountains of Pennsylvania, cutting down timber for a mining company. The rest of the guys had bounced from the job site up on the mountain, and he was staying there to try to earn some extra money when you can probably assume where this story is going in a freak accident a large piece of timber that he was cutting smashes the bottom of his leg and he's pinned in he looks down and he can actually see through his legs the places several places where the bone has broken through the skin tries he might tries to pull himself out shouts for help no one's around and then he realizes it's a do or die moment and he realizes I'm not getting out, and help is not coming. And his quote was, "In that moment, I decided to live." Pulled out his pocket knife, three dollars from a flea market. Stealed himself, prayed to God, and tried to start cutting off and amputating his own leg below the kneecap. When he went to cut, the blade wasn't sharp enough to cut through his jeans had to grab a rock to sharpen the pocket knife to cut through his own leg. Eventually, after passing out several times and tying a handmade tourniquet around it to stench the bleeding, he removes himself from his limb and from his trap, Crawls, army crawls uphill 400 feet to a bulldozer, gets in the bulldozer, drives a quarter mile down the mountain to his truck, gets in his truck, and it's a stick shift. (laughs) And somehow Donald decided to live, figured out a way to clutch it, break it, and gas it, and literally had the thought, I better slow down or I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) Found the first house, crawled out in a bloody mess, and said, please call for help. We're in a series where Jesus is going to recommend some of the same drastic advice that Donald Wyman took. If you're trapped or you're cut off, don't hesitate, amputate whatever has you pinned down, choose to live regardless of the cost. And Jesus is going to use some outlandish examples to kind of spark our thinking, to give us a new perspective and to consider seriously the claims that Jesus Christ has over our life. So again, we're in Matthew chapter five. We're calling a series called five, five memorable teachings of Jesus we would rather forget. Because the implications of which have drastic consequences for how we live, how we think, and how we treat one another. And so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there to Matthew chapters 5, and we'll be starting in verse 27 tonight. I'm gonna pray for us in just a second, and then just fair warning Jesus is talking about lust, so we're gonna talk about lust. So, do with that what you wanna do. I'll do my best to be as appropriate as possible, so pray for me. Just kidding. Uh, No, I'm not. Um, But we're going to talk about our sexuality. There's nothing I'm not going to say to you that I wouldn't say to my 13-year-old son or my 10-year-old daughter when I talk to them about theirs, that it is a gift from God and it's up to us to protect it and preserve it and for it to flourish the way that God's designed it to. So that just means some honest conversation sometime. So let me pray for us uh, before we jump into God's word. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Eyes to see your beauty and your glory and not just the things that we lust after that hold lies and false promises. Give us ears to hear what you're really saying and not just our own excuses. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, would you go before us in this text and make a way? And together we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And even if your hand, your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say, ouch. Uh, We can say, thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One one, uh, scholar I was reading says, this is Jesus at his ornery best. (laughs) What do we do with that? We already talked last week. I think I mentioned it. There's got to be something deeper here than Jesus talking about pirate patches and prosthetics. Like Obviously, we know Jesus is not advocating self-harm. And again, he's using outlandish, radical examples to spark us to a radical response and a radical obedience. It's his message from the beginning. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Think differently and act differently. Just because you think you've avoided committing some of the 10 commandments does not mean that you are right with God. It just means that you're disciplined and you're probably good at hiding so he's trying to get us to figure out a way how our righteousness can exceed some of the religious leaders of that day. How can we truly think and live in a way that we want God's rule and reign to constantly be present, not only the way we act, not only the way that people perceive us, but what we think about when we're alone, what we look at when we're alone. So again, let's just address some of the problematic things with this passage. So if you struggle with lust and you gouge your eye out, what do you still have? One more other eye. That's not going to automatically go, oh, wow, totally cured. All right? That's it. The hand is a reference back to anger. You struggle with hitting people, cut this arm off and start kicking people, right? Again, Jesus is showing what he's after is let's get down to the root But I wonder what he's also saying is, hey, don't hesitate to amputate one single thing that stokes those uncontrollable lusts into an uncontrollable fire. Let's get to the heart of the matter. And for a lot of us, before we can get to the heart of the matter, we actually have to set up an environment in which we can make sure that those temptations are not consistently available to us so that we can actually heal. But so many of us have so many excuses about why we justify how we need this or we need that, or, hey, I know I struggle with this, and I know this is usually the primary place that I struggle with it, but I need this and such and such. I remember Ben Stewart, a college pastor, he's always talking uh, to college students about lust because you're still allowed to talk about it when you're a college student. Um, After you grow up, we no longer mention it in the church. But uh, is it like talking to one guy, yeah, man, it's just my phone's been killing me. Great, okay, so when? Usually at night. All right, great. Where's your phone at night? It's right next to my bedside table. Uh, just a simple suggestion. Maybe you want to move it across the room or something. No, man, it's my alarm clock. And you can spend five ninety nine for an alarm clock. Then you can lock down your phone? Think you get some accountability software? Think you can delete some apps? Do you think, oh, no, man, well, I just, I, I, I can't do that. This is what gets fired me up, man. I love people who are broken and wounded and who've got sins that they're ashamed of, but they're just ready to go for it. Like, if God is good and healing's available, tell me what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna run through a wall if you tell me to. What fires me up is, well, here's why I can't do that. Ho-hum, I guess... God will never love me and I'll never change. Not the gospel. The gospel is here to give you life and life abundantly through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means nothing in my life is off limits to radical obedience. And I've got to start to ask the question, what am I secretly hiding? If I was to list out my lusts and the lies that come with them, which things in my life am I currently justifying? Because I put my supposed happiness over obedience. And it never works out that way. So here's some things that I think will help us. What do you mean by lust? Well, the word there is a lingering and leering look with intentional desire. Okay? God's designed us to appreciate beauty. He's given us sex drives. He's given us human sexuality. Does that get broken and warped and distorted? Absolutely. The answer to that is not getting rid of it entirely. The answer to that is hopefully redeeming it. Okay, it's, it's, it's a gift. Someone was asking me, how do you know when it turns from noticing to lusting? As someone who has struggled with lust, I can feel it go kerplunk in my heart. You, you know this. you feel it. And whether this is sexually or materialistically or envy when you see someone else who has something you want, you know that moment that it just grips around your heart and the lie begins to squeeze out the beauty and truth. And you can't be happy or celebrate, but then you just feel something whisper in you, you deserve that. You won't be happy unless you have something like that. That's my best definition of lust. Or the Bible says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That's what death begins to smell like to me. Because I know if I stay here long enough where this leads to. Now, this specifically, hey, if you're just here considering the claims of Christ, um, you're just trying to figure out what Christianity's about, I'm having a family discussion, okay? This is not a talk where I try to consider, uh, convince you of the claims that pornography and lust are detrimental to your soul, your mind, and your marriage. The research on that is actually overwhelming. Love to share it with you sometimes. But this night is for Christian children of God who have found themselves in a place where lust has a grip and a hold and a stronghold in their life. And they've gotten to a place that Donald Wyman got to. I decided I want to live, because I'm pinned down, and I'm trapped, and something needs to be amputated from my life, because how I'm currently living is leading to death. And I've got a sneaking sufficient, there's just more death in store. What I want is to be loved, valued, and approved, and what I've realized is this has started to sabotage my ability to connect to God and connect to other people in significant life-giving ways. Even then, those of you who are there, there will be excuses that come up. There will be reasons for you to go, no, 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 I don't need to listen to that, or hey, I'll do that tomorrow, or yeah, that's fine for you, or that's great for you, religious zealot. I just, I don't want to be one of those people. Of all the excuses I've heard and I've made myself personally, I think it all boils down to this one sentence. Whether I say this or not, I believe that my sexuality is my business as long as it's not hurting anyone. That seems to be the prevailing cultural idea around our human sexuality today, right? You do what's right for you, who am I to judge? Just as long as it's not hurting anyone. Hey, men and women, here's a cultural observation. When you remove a holy and sovereign and just and loving, forgiving God from your worldview, and you realize that you were designed to worship, usually which naturally takes as its place is human sexuality, and so, Giving free, unrestricted reign to your sexual desires becomes the basis of what you worship. And the only thing that matters is, hey, as long as you're not hurting anyone, it's okay. It's relativism. That's okay for you. That's all right for you. I'll do my thing. You do your thing. Who am I to say anything? Now, hear me very clearly. The church... And Christians need to publicly and humbly repent for the judgmental, arrogant, outcasting, manipulative, condemning ways we have treated people who struggle with their sexuality. It's almost as if in the way that we've responded to sexual brokenness, Jesus has gotten lost in a religion that bears his name. That was Erwin McManus who said that. And a reminder that in the gospel, some of Jesus' kindest words were for those who were trapped in sexual sin. Some of his harshest words were for the religious leaders who they never struggled like that. I never had that happen. Hey, are just some reminders, okay? Uh, Let me just get to the point. I think we're there. I just... This is a reminder for you as the children of God. I say this as a as a loving parent. Yeah. Our sexuality, like all else, is a gift from God. It is not our private possession to dispose of as we will. Right and wrong are not a matter of individual decision, but the revealed word of God. This flies against our individualistic uh, society. We love making our own rules. We... I struggle with this too. I don't like to submit to authority, especially if I don't agree with it. If I agree with it, I've got no problems. (laughs) My sex life and my thought life actually does involve others and may even hurt them even if I'm unaware of it. And then the last reminder, there are matters that cannot simply be handled legalistically i.e. let's make another rule, but must go to the very root of human life, to the heart, to the intention. I believe this is what Jesus is after. Jesus is trying to get to the heart that's easily corrupted, even if you have the outward appearance of righteousness. So I know this is difficult. This has affected many of us in this room in different ways. Um, I would submit to you that if I brought up all my couple friends um, who have dealt with infidelity and adultery and lined them up in here and said, Hey, when Jesus says don't look at another person's spouse and lust, do you consider that legalism? They would say, No, I consider that freedom, and I wish we had taken it seriously. I would also say this affects men and women alike. Women, you don't have to bear added shame, okay? It's, it's, it feels shameful enough as it is, and then when we relegate it to the property of one gender, then we heap on more shame. And I know there's varying degrees of struggle with this. I want you to know that the grace and the goodness and the power and the authority of Jesus covers it all. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you are loved, you are valued, and you are empowered. That is not a magical incantation that takes away all desire. That is a gospel promise that your desire to live as his holy chosen and called one can exceed your sexual desire. Also when we're dealing with lust or sexual addiction or any addiction for that matter, If I was to line up all the dudes I know who struggle with addiction, they would go, in a heartbeat, I would give my eye to have this removed. If I never had to struggle with this again, that's not only a fair trade, I came out on the winning end. For those of you who don't know what addiction is like, people who are involved in it are like, I don't know how to fix myself and I've tried almost anything and it fails again and again, I would gladly sacrifice a limb. I could line up parents and spouses who have loved addicts And they would gladly have their right hand amputated if their child or their spouse would be miraculously healed. And I could line up God who would give his son to die on a cross so that you could experience wholeness and forgiveness. There's no promises that this stuff magically disappears. But there is a promise that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a different way that you can take the smallest step of obedience towards creating a place and a system and a pattern in life that does not continually give footholds to your drugs of choice. It empowers you to take action. And I can tell you this, you can't do it by yourself. Because most of the way that many of us manage the shame of struggling with lust and addiction is, okay, I'm gonna go away from this place and I'm gonna work really, really hard all by myself. It takes the community of God, it takes vulnerability, and it takes accountability. It takes countless amputations of you coming back to the table and go, yeah, I thought this would work, it didn't, but I'm ready to try again. Because God's not done forgiving me, so I'm not done trying. The, one of the best metaphors that I've come across uh, for this is in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Great Divorce. Um, it's an amazing story. The, the context I'd love to give to you before I read this, uh, just a short section of it, is it presupposes a group of people take a bus ride uh, to heaven and they wanna climb the mountain of God. Lewis flips it on its head. He says, those who are human look like ghosts. The very thin and dim, when the angels appear, they are bright and real and large and heavy and dense and everything in heaven is bright and vivid and more real because it's the reality that you were created to live in. So when he's referring to a ghost, he's referring to a human. And when he refers uh, to the angel, it's obviously an angel. Um, And each of these are conversations about people where they're trying to get to the heart of the matter of what's keeping them from God. And so this is one where a guy walks up and there is a little lizard on his shoulder that's whining and whipping its tail in his ear, complaining and manipulating. And you'll come to see that this serves as uh, an allegory for lust. And here's the conversation between the angel and the man who is the ghost um, about the lizard. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Listen in here for some of the same arguments you've had with the the lust that has owned you. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh no, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, the ghost said, retreating. Do you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It is the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were, very, were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question, and I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later, isn't there? There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep now on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think that over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling so good today. And it would be most silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation. So some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'll kill me if you did. It is not so. Why? You're hurting me now. I never said It wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know what you think. You think I'm a coward, but that isn't it. Really, it isn't, I say. Let me run back to the bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? Why are you making fun of me? How can I let you tear me into pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the bloody thing without asking me before I knew? It would all be over now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The scene goes on where the angel is almost closing his death grip on the lizard and the lizard begins to speak and manipulate and lie and then bargain one of his lines is i know i've never given you any real pleasure but i've given you dreams and i promise i'll give you more illusions finally the conversation concludes have i your permission the angel said to the ghost i know it will kill me the angel says it won't but supposing it did You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I. Just do it. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost. But ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. God help us all. We're trapped or we're pinned down and we're cut off. What would it look like for us to choose to live tonight the way that God's designed us to live? The story isn't finished. Once the angel kills the lizard, it transforms. It transforms into a beautiful, mighty stallion. White with a gold mane and a gold hair. And immediately the man stands up taller than ever and more real than ever with tears coming down his eyes, which Lewis would describe as liquid love. And then mounts the stallion and horse and rider go off to the mountain of God. What would it take for you tonight to allow God to transform your lusts into a pure and holy desire? What is it tonight that you don't even need to hesitate With God's power and God's help, you need to amputate so that his healing and his wholeness can come into your life. I'll close with these words from Romans 8, 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by your sinful nature, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Amen. Let's take 120 seconds and practice our listening prayer. This is where we reflect on what did God have my name on tonight? If you're courageous and crazy enough, I'd encourage you to list out your lusts. And the coordinating lies that they tell you that are going to lead you to death. And then perhaps ask the Holy Spirit what do I need to cut out? What cancerous lust do I need to cut off so that I can cut free? And fully understand and recognize the person you're calling me to be. Who's the one person that the Lord brings to your mind that says, hey, I'm going to risk bringing this into the light by talking to so-and-so?